Good morning and happy hump day, folks. It is a fantastic day, and let me give you three reasons why today is another fantastic day. Are you ready for this? Flushing toilets, hot showers, and fuzzy socks. That's right. I said it, fuzzy socks. They keep my feet warm in the morning, and I'm not afraid and ashamed to admit it because some clever, smart capitalist out there figured out a way to flush my toilet, give me hot water, and produce furry fuzz around my feet. Folks, it's the little things in life that make it worthwhile. So don't get caught up in the things you cannot control. That's just wasted energy. All right, let's get this hump day started now. Hump it hump. It's time to play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. Show play hard, work hard. Wednesday, January twentieth. Oh my goodness! It's already halfway past the first month of the year. We're coming up on a year anniversary of COVID coming up. Well, March Madness. <laughs> yeah, should we get a cake? That's when they. Oh, that's when you knew it was real. What, like one of those uh, the COVID what, cake? No, one of those uh, chicken pox cakes <laughs> where everybody has coughs their COVID on the cake, and you take uh. a you take a bite of it, and everybody gets COVID like. One of those chicken pox parties that Jenny McCarthy's kids have. Oh, sure. You know what I'm talking about, I, right? I do, yeah. Yeah, that was in Australia, that's actually a thing. I so. was actually sent to other kids' houses to try to get chicken pox. That is Sterling. My name is Jason Spees. This is the Crude Life Morning Show. Play hard, work hard, and we're going to talk a lot about ESG today. Sterling, do you know what that is? ESG? E- ESG. You're an interesting duck because you grew up in oil and gas, but you don't work in oil and gas. Never have. So you really don't know much about the current oil and gas innovations or technologies, and you're learning. I am learning, yeah. And it is fascinating stuff, but no, I I just grew up with a parent that worked in the oil and gas industry. And you lived in Saudi Arabia Mm -hmm. on an oil base Mm -hmm. known as Dahran. Dahran, yep. Which basically is a big giant man camp with golf courses and... Snack bars, swimming pools. What did, what did you call the store? Commissary. Commissary. Yeah, it's like what they would call it on a base. Commissary. Commissary. I don't yep. think a lot of people are used to that. It was a company shop. And then right next door to that was the unmarked pork shop because like the shop. pork was illegal in the country. Oh, that's right, because yeah. of the Muslim population. Mm-hmm. But they allowed you to buy a certain amount of pork from the pork shop each month. How about fish? Fish was cool. A lot of Christians and fish. Yeah, no, fish was cool. Okay. Muslims are okay with that? I think so. I don't think there's any problem with the fish. No holy wars started on that? Give it some time. I mean, cartoons are problematic. We know that with Family Guy and some of the other uh, cartoons in the history. So I'm not trying to be facetious. No, no, it's a country with a lot of censorship. Well, I would, yeah, there is. We're we're Mm going to talk about that tomorrow with Sterling about some of the censorship that he had to go through to where... He would travel back and forth, and, and they would be censoring out his uh, magazines. and he'd Or just to, take them away. Or just take them away, go to the commissary, and 
The Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition would be three pages. <laughs> we never got the two, swimsuit edition. Two Gatorade ads, <laughs> McDonald's ad with yeah, Michael it was, Jordan. It was just a Marlboro ad and then we had a back cover, I think. <laughs> and females that weren't allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. Not I think outside they are the now, camp. Though, right? Yeah, that has changed, but there's still some regulation on it. But yeah. So, anyway, we're going to have some uh, stories with Sterling about his days growing up uh, living literally in an oil and gas community where every employee there was a direct result of the employees of Standard Oil, which then turned into Ramco, where your father worked at the time, yep. which is now Saudi, Saudi Ramco. Ramco. So, yep. All right, so ESG, Environmental Social Governance. Did you just make this up? No, it's a new term, new okay. term. It's uh, been around for a little while, but it's the... It's it's the Greta term, okay? It's it's oh, the okay the social governance part, right? Of it. And so what it is is you, you've heard me go on my little tirades mm-hmm. about how it's the, the, this is not a government regulation battle; it's a social regulation battle. That's where this ESG comes in because you have to think of it like a like either a circle or a pyramid or something like that, and and you've got different layers, okay? So the the outer layer. Oh, by the way, folks, before we get into this boring ESG stuff, did you like the way I talked about that? <laughs> now I'm waiting. Um, Come on. I do want to mention our sponsor, Hatch Coaching. Hatch Coaching. If you'd like to get inspired, you can certainly hire Eric Hatch to come down and inspire you, but he also inspires your real estate. He's one of the top realtors. I believe he is the top realtor yeah, in see North signs Dakota. Everywhere. But he does inspirational speaking and coaching too. So uh, like inside sales, outside sales, does a great job of motivating your salespeople to get them out there, keeps them accountable, gives them tr- uh, tips and tricks and that sort of thing. And it's his method that he brought into real estate, which brought him from a mid-level realtor at Keller Williams to owning his own multi-million dollar, I think he's top 60 now yeah. in the nation. I, and I know around town, you, it, that is the name. That's the name you see, that's the name you hear. Endorsed by Barbara Corcoran from... Uh, Shark Tank? Shark Tank. So he's, he's a real deal. Mm-hmm. Real deal. Uh, featured in Inc. Magazine, you know, when they do around the States. He, yeah. was the, he was the one because of his growth. He's kind of a shining star in the, in the Fargo area, for sure, in North Dakota. Also, my son's godfather. Really? Oh, yeah. Hatch, uh, Eric Hatch and I, we're old friends, and that's, that's why he's a, he's a supporter of the program more for me yeah. than, uh, than actually well, you the, chose well. the program <laughs> and vice versa. I help support him yeah. uh, because of him, you know, type of a thing. True story. Our, our mothers passed away on the same day wow. several years apart. Wow. Yeah. So that's our connection. That's another. Yeah, that's definitely. We we were both pretty young when it happened. And so we we used to spend broken family Christmases together. That's what we call them. Broken (laughs) Broken family family Christmases. Christmases. (laughs) We used to get really drunk and go to a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like he's got a lot of background for motivational speaking. You'd get really mad hearing me talk about this. He's like the most successful entrepreneur in the last 20 years to come out of North Dakota. And I'm telling telling stories about getting drunk, watching bad Bruce. Willis movies with Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> what was that? My weakness is water like yours. Unbreakable. Oh, oh terrible. Yes. Oh, yes. Awful. Everybody loved it. I thought it was terrible, but all right. We're going to get back to this ESG because our newsmaker interview is Lance Medlin. Now, he's with Meridian Energy Group. Meridian Energy Group spearheading the very first greenfield refinery to be built in the United States in the last 47 years. Okay, I think it's 47 years, 48 years now, because we just switched years. So, yeah, you like that? I, I do. That's very smooth. 
So we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to ask him how the ESG, you know, acceptance is coming because there's a lot of people against it, okay? But they're doing that workaround, okay? Remember those, those stories about the pension plans getting attacked by the protesters because they have fossil fuel investments? And right. we just yeah. read one the other day where uh, they were trying to pass a law so you couldn't discriminate against it and that sort of thing. Well, this is what this is about. And Meridian Energy Group, we've been tracking their company for five, six years now, and they've been run through the ringer. But they've been ESG certified. And now they've got this free template, what they did basically. To get for, certified? For companies to okay. say, hey, listen, <laughs> trust us. It's real. It sucks. It takes this. Use ours. Use ours. And who's making it a requirement? The banks. The, oh, okay. So uh, that's Greta, where the pressure's coming Greta from. Greta Thunberg right. and her uh, um, army of, I, I, only call, I call them climate activists. I mean, they're not environmentalists because, hey. I adopted a highway back in 2004. I don't know how many other environmentalists have done that. No, but it goes back to what you're saying about the social pressure. I yes. think that's that's where they're trying to get in. So here's some of the in ESG. You ready for this? Okay. So when you think about the, the outer shell, you've got, I think it's like 12. Yeah, it's 12 different pillars, if you will. Okay. And then on the inner one, you've got three. And then there's even some where you have six, right? So you've got these different layers so from the environmental side climate change is included ecological footprint is included mm -hmm. resource use as well as pollution so you take those things right and they're creating a score for that no kidding and then they're going to put that in the category environment mm -hmm. and then in the core there's going to be some algebraic formula that's going to be an esg score an ESG rating, which is going to be dependent on well, how and why you can get investments. I guarantee you this is so coming. So it's based on some sort of algorithm or formula. So, okay, right? the way I just explained the environmental side to you, mm -hmm. now let's go to the social side, okay? ESG, environmental, social, governance, okay? Social part, health and safety. Customer responsibility, Okay. Now, what we mean by that is you have to educate, like the beer people. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen a liquor ad of anybody who's taken a drink in a year and a half. Everybody's drinking water and telling people to drive socially. Do you know what I mean? Right, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Crown Royal ads this year, all the guy's doing is getting a glass of water. And he turns <laughs> around and he just he's drinking the water, but it's a Crown Royal ad. That's customer responsibility. When you go look at all the plastic bags and all the plastic straws, that ain't mcdonald's fault right that's that's the customer's fault yeah so that's the social part of it then you got community impact okay like what we're trying to do with the uh, the environmental or the uh, industrial, industrial forest, forest okay we're trying to create a community impact with mm -hmm. the industrial forest all right and then there's labor standards so how you treat your employees are you running a banana republic or are you running a banana republic <laughs> most of that stuff sounds pretty standard though right uh you would think yeah so then you've got the governance side. So ESG, environmental, social, governance. So on the G side of things, shareholder rights, which that's well beyond me because yeah, I, don't have a my lot of, I don't have a lot of shareholders and I don't have a lot of rights. <laughs> then there's risk management, okay? So from the governance side, what's your risk management into this? Which 
I'm not sure why the governance has to be involved with that or the government has to be involved or any sort of regulation, but they're trying to get companies to mitigate their risks. I guess because they know they get bailed out all the time. So the government has to say, listen, we're tired of bailing you guys out all the time. We need to see your risk management. Isn't that how the government generally does it anyway, is they hold out the carrot, you know, and say, if you want the money, you've got to do this, this, and this. That's all that, well, from farming, certainly. I mean, soybeans, corn, and, you know, I mean. Yeah. uh, If. (laughs) That's a whole nother segment. Oh, totally is. Well, that's the subsidies. But that was by design. Mm -hmm. That was by design. And. So it's, that way they could go buy a new tractor, a new combine, a new suit, go to the diners after church. Right. That was, the, you know, wash your car, whatever. And so, all right. So let's get to the next one of the ESG. We have, okay, shareholder rights, risk management, tax transparency. Okay, tax transparency. Interesting how they just passed that shell company tax transparency. Yeah, they knew we were coming. You can no longer have anonymous shell companies Mm -hmm. and are you noticing now that there are some uh wealthy individuals where all of a sudden they're getting publicly shamed for well bill gates all of a sudden out of nowhere he's the largest landowner in the united states did you see that story i did i saw the headline for it yeah and i wondered if it was because of that shell company law because there was three to reveal it well there was three or four other companies cited in that article that said Bill Gates has ownership in this company, and they own this amount of land. He owns one acre in New Mexico. One acre in New Mexico. He's got like hundreds of thousands in like Wisconsin. That's probably where his bunker is, is underneath that one acre, dude. No one no one will find me there. Everybody's going to be in Well, it's Colorado. like when I bought a square foot of uh, uh, land in Scotland, you know? <laughs> I, I looked at all that different things, and it's like, okay, he's got 100000 there. Fifty. Wisconsin. Okay, you're starting to see these bizarre things. Oh, that's got to be like a surface mineral right or something, right? That one. I don't know, but Ted right? Turner, uh, he owns most of his land is in Wisconsin and why? I'm sorry, in uh, New Mexico and Wyoming. Okay, he's got these just fantastic elk preserves in out out in in um, New Mexico. Oh, I think that's where Ted Nugent hunts. You know the best conspiracy theories when it comes to these wild preserves? Hmm. T. Boone Pickens, you know, his wife? Yeah. So I interviewed her. No kidding. Oh, yeah. Awesome. And I'll never forget this. I guess Because I, I interviewed T. Boone Pickens a couple times, and that guy, he's a hoot, man. He's just a hoot <laughs> and a half. But his wife, uh, she had these wild horse preserves. Hmm. I, I The show I did, we took calls. Some guy called in and got into this deep conspiracy about the Bush family and the aquifers they own and how Ted Turner's, uh, no, no, this uh, T. Boone's Pickens' wife's land was just a cover for T. Boone to own all the water rights in America, all this stuff. And I was like, are you recording this? Because this is just gold, man. This is good stuff. But anyway, so that's... Man. Well, you know, there's a a conspiracy for everything. There is. I mean, at some point, you can make Bambi into Hitler. I mean, you dissect something enough and it's, well, like you mentioned those deep dive videos where it turns like Harrison Ford into Kevin Costner into Chewbacca. Yeah. So, uh, all right. The fourth part of the governance on the ESG rating is anti-corruption. So you've got shareholder rights, risk management, tax transparency, anti-corruption. So before now you could be corrupt and it was cool. That's right. Dang it. See, we're, (laughs) we're behind a couple of steps here. So recapping. For an ESG, the way that many people look at it, okay? And we're, I am going to ask, 
Lance Medlin about the ESG rating, which is going to be like a credit score. And I have had conversations with Federal Reserve members about this. Yeah, I'd be curious what the what the formula is, how they arrive at a number that says, yes, you're in compliance or no, you're not. So here's the formula that's being float, floated around. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. It's the ones I just named. So you've got from the environmental side, you have the formula of pollution, resource use, ecological footprint, and climate change. Okay, they take your results based on that, mm-hmm. and then they put it into the circle. And then they go to the social side, and they look at your health and safety, your customer responsibility, your community impact, and your labor standards. And then they add that up, and then they throw that in the circle. And then they grab your shareholder rights, your risk management, your tax transparency, and your anti-corruption. And then they throw that into the circle. And then they have add them up, divide by three, carry the one. That's your ESG rating score. How could a small operator and i don't mean like an individual i'm talking about you know it's they got 30 40 employees how do you you'd have to have somebody dedicated to just working on that compliance stuff Without a i doubt. Would think that that's just doing that i mentioned the other day i i believe part of what's happening here is there's a shift in industry colorado you you got a whole new industry now of putting up sound walls around wells because that's a new regulation you got a whole new industry of trying to get computer programs written for iPads and, and iPhones in order to streamline automation. So there's a little bit of a shift. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like, so it, we're not eliminating all, all the jobs as much as shifting some of them too. So just real quick, what do you think is a bigger challenge for the industry? Is it regulation or is it efficiency and streamlining like oh do you no, see more jobs lost from which over time i think their biggest issue is is public relations and this social regulations mm-hmm. um there's they've done a very good job of of in the past to the tune to where they actually have government relations departments that's how tight they are with a lot mm-hmm. of government officials okay and that worked for a number of years now the, the this this Greta Thunberg evolution this is well beyond anything that um, the Sierra Club ever had. Okay, yeah, it, this is a whole new wave that they don't want to listen to facts. They want things to be cool, hip, fun, and make sense. And right now, for whatever reason, oil and gas doesn't make sense to them. Well, you know. You look at somebody like Greta and you see somebody who's got a lot of passion, right? She's, you can't sure, deny that, sure. got a lot of passion. But when it comes down to it, uh, she's 18. And one of the problems with youth that you and I can still remember is that, you know, you tend to think in those extremes of it's black or white, it's either good or it's mm-hmm. bad. Um, and the idea of just shutting down, right? You know, you, you talk about oil and gas as this evil thing, but they never talk about people like my dad, people like, you know, every, people that we've talked to on the phone, people that you know that, you know, the jobs that are impacted because of that. And meanwhile, this 18-year-old and her movement are kicking the industry's butt all over the place in terms when, of messaging. When I knew the industry was, ha- was seriously in trouble when it comes to the PR side of things is when they had that climate change summit, like the Paris Convention, or I don't even know if it's the G, whatever it is, but is the big climate change symposium. And she was the featured... That was in New York, I think. 
whatever. Because she came in on a boat? I, I have no idea. All I know is that she was the one that got all the headlines, mm-hmm. got all the attention. And that's when I knew we were in a new world because climate is science. Okay? Greta is not science. She's a mascot. Mm-hmm. She's a mascot for a movement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's being propped up by a lot of people that she, believe in her, she's but not she's just a, being used as a. She, at that time, she wasn't even a high school graduate. Mm-hmm. And she got the lead keynote. She's like the lead. So you go to climatology school, you get your PhD and whatever, and in mm-hmm. ionospheres and, and uh, stratospheres. I and, wouldn't know. I'm a moonologist. That's true. You are, you Saturn <laughs> worshiper. So. When I take a look at all these really intelligent, smart, brilliant men, women, scientists, didn't get an inkling of ink, any clickbait headline, nothing. It was all Greta this. It's it's tailor-made for social media and reality. No, I know, but that that showed me that all of a sudden now science didn't matter when it came to the climate thing. Well, that's where I think we come back to the whole idea of regulation – is seems to be kind of a, a dead path for government because it swings back and forth. You get one administration in, they cut it down. You get another one in, they lift it up. Mm-hmm. But the dominance and the pressure from the social, that that stuff is hard to, to fight against. And the momentum of somebody like her and that youth, that's a powerful message. That's And that's why I've been kind of, I don't know, ruffling a little feathers a little bit lately by challenging the industry by saying, listen, I think you guys are fighting the wrong battle. I really think this is a social governance mm-hmm. regulation. You know what not I'd like a to see? Government no, regulation. I, this is going to be decided ultimately, I think, by government, but it's going to be totally pressure. That's what I'm getting to at. There. So is yeah. that government's reacting from the social pressure. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we have the issue. So anyway, coming up a little later in the program, in our newsmaker, we have Lance Medlin with Meridian Energy Group, first greenfield refinery. They're the cleanest refinery in the world the minute they go online that's awesome they've been fighting court battles for like three four years because of this esg movement so it's real folks it is real and they won all the court battles Mm -hmm. they are synthetic still standing they're going to be putting a second one down in kermit texas the walton refinery in winkler county and my understanding is that I heard of a third one too in Oklahoma. So once well, that's just it. Once you can get the template down, then yeah. you can get your business rolling again. They'll have to go through that process each time individual sites are open, though, right? But at least they'll have that template. They'll have well, yeah. the company has the the stuff done. Yeah, yeah, because you're going to have to go through a little work. bit just because of the local regulations yeah. and state regulations. But a lot of it now is based on who's the company and what do they have. Mm-hmm. So. All right, that interview will, of course, be on the Swan Energy phone lines. Hatch Coaching is our sponsor today. Of course, we have all the links available at thecrudelife.com. That is Sterling Frackleberry Hound is the noise you've been hearing in the background, chewing on her chewy paws antlers. Coming up next, we're going to talk about, what is it, band stories from Saudi Arabia? All right, coming up next here on the Crude Life Morning Show. Play hard work. He's got to change his ways of thinking He's got to grab a hold of the one he loves And I drowned in silence 
The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. It's sponsored in part by... If you have natural gas leases and are looking to sell them, Swan Energy wants to talk to you today. Give them a call at 866-539-0860. That's 866-539-0860. Swan Energy is buying up natural gas leases, and they may buy yours too. Give them a call today. The industrial forest. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. To the Crude Life Morning Show. Play hard, work hard. It is, what day is it? Wednesday today? Wednesday. All right. Hump I just day. said that before. I grabbed my Thursday note sheet by accident and I went, nope, it's Wednesday. Hear that? I did. Very we official. St- we still use paper here. <laughs> Minus one on ESG. Still use paper. I think that's where we're going. Really? I, I do think it's going to be like the social media score on that Black Mirror episode with along those lines, but we'll okay. get into that a little bit later. Man, but I love paper. Coming up in the second portion of the show, the second hour on our Swan Energy phone lines, Lance Medlin with Meridian Energy Group going to join us to talk about ESG as well as some of the refineries they have going. And Sterling, I was wondering, because we talked about sports last Friday. Yes, sir. Kate Hornbrook was on the program, and, you know, great games over the weekend. In fact, I met some buddies out at uh, a local tavern Mm -hmm. for a couple uh, barley pops. I didn't have that. I had grape juice. Of course. And... George Chiefs game. Boy, it was packed. By the way, the the the, the tavern full. Really, was full. A lot of social so distancing. They, oh no, they lifted the regulations in North Dakota. You know that, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so this place was wall to wall, forty five minute wait. Mm-hmm. Packer game. It was full. All this different stuff carried over to the Bills Ravens game. Oh yeah, on Saturday. Yeah. And boy, man, people were drinking like it was going out of style. And so <sighs> it's I been was, a tough year already, man. <laughs> it made me wonder. Like uh, Saudi Arabia has some different cultural yeah you, you mentioned they have a re- religious police mm-hmm. okay so yeah. and and i assume that is authority figures that enforce religion well is a, <laughs> you know i i'm not a total expert but the okay. uh you would run into people downtown i think they were called the matawa and it was like a i don't know if they were an actual like deputized group but they were basically it was like you were talking about in our last episode is about social pressure yeah right so it'd be like shaming but they would you know they would they would scold people if they didn't cover up their hair or if their dresses were too short are you Uh, kidding me i'm not kidding you no huh like 
Like the fashion police at a high school? Yeah, but more like because it's religious, <laughs> you know. Women, okay, so like, for example, if we went Boy, down yeah. to the local town, my mom had to keep her hair covered, but she didn't have to cover her face. But any anybody that lived there that was a native, yeah, they if they were out in public, their faces were covered. Can I just make it through one segment without accidentally offending a country? Well, dude, you know, you're talking about a culture that in, in many terrible. ways is is, a, is really a polar opposite of what we're used to here in terms of personal freedoms. Well, and that's why I was wondering, going, you know, can, can you guys even drink there? No, no, alcohol is illegal. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So could you drink in the American compound? No, alcohol was illegal there. Now, there was a consulate so that we could go there and so, you could get, you could drink there. Okay, what do you mean by that, a consulate? Like there was a, there was an embassy. Okay. Uh, outside of Dahran. And so occasionally they would have like July 4th, you could go out there for their party, right? If you were an American and you could drink on, okay. the, on the compound. But no, most of uh, my dad and his friends, they made it. Oh. Yeah. There was oh, a, there so was a they, lot oh of, a lot of microbreweries in Dahran back in the 80s. You had stills in Yeah, Dahran? in fact, originally, in fact, I, have a, I had a friend whose dad had been there since the 40s. <laughs> yeah, man. Initially, Aramco used to give you a still. Oh. And, and one of my friend's dad still had one, and it was this brass, beautiful thing with gauges. And they actually, if you look on the, the uh, architectural plans for the houses that they built, one of the rooms off the garage was called the still room. Are you kidding me? I kid me. you not. It had a floor so, drain. It had power. So this was... It was the, sort of like a, we wink, know you're going to do yeah. it. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say, this is like one of those things. Listen, guys. Yep. We can't let you do it, but we know you're going to do it. Yep. Just do what you got to do. Yep. Don't get caught, right? Well, you know, right. actually, back forties and fifties and sixties, it was generally a lot more liberal over there. There was, there was. That's when they gave you the stills. But that's when would, they just kind of turned an eye. But it got a lot more conservative in the seventies and eighties when I was over there. So they didn't give out stills anymore. They were, they would search vehicles coming in and out of the compound uh, if you were coming back from Bahrain, which was about twelve miles away across a causeway. No, what's Bahrain? Bahrain is a small nation. That's in the Gulf. It's a nation. It's, a it's, nation. Not, it's not even a city. No, it's a nation. Okay. It's, a, it's basically an island nation. Um, it's the headquarters of, I think, our our fleet in the Gulf. Um, and it's, it, but they do allow alcohol. So we'd go over there on the weekends. My parents would go to a Mexican restaurant, drink oh, margaritas. We call that Canada. Yeah, yeah, we had. That. Yeah, or if you went over the border to gamble or something like that, right? Or some, if you live in Minnesota, Wisconsin. Yeah, except you had to have a passport. So. Drunk Wisconsinis. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of drunk. So yeah, I grew up drinking a lot of homemade uh, beer, a lot of wine, and a tremendous amount of moonshine. Uh, what kind of uh, wine, or what kind of mead, or what kind of fruit, or what? How did you? I mean, beer. This, I guess you this got, was you got wheat and barley yeah. rice. But what about the wine and the? Well, this is another example of them sort of turning an eye. Is that if you went to the commissary, you could actually buy everything you needed to make wine, right? So they had grapefruit. Right, grape, grape, uh, sparkling water. Right, came in the bottles. You right. could use that. You could use the bottles, the sugar, all of the elements you needed, the tubing, everything <laughs> the was there. Basically, yeah, everything. <laughs> the malt powder. Yeah. But they kind of were like, I don't know what you're going to do waffles. with it. Exactly. So yeah, my dad made wine. That was his primary thing. But a lot of my friends made uh, their dads made moonshine. Okay, so like a like a. Just a flat old whiskey rye. Yeah, or? we called it Siddiqui. Uh, it's called Siddiqui. Siddiqui. Yeah, it's basically uh, the stuff would come out at about 185 proof first run. 
Oh my, okay, we call that Everclear. Yeah, and you didn't drink that. In okay. fact, my dad would use that sometimes to start the truck when he got back from vacation. Um, yeah, you didn't drink that, but Some second, did. second or third run, you'd still be at like 90 or 100 proof. So that's what I grew up drinking. That's why I don't drink a lot anymore. <laughs> I swear, man. Oh, my word. Yeah, it's all homemade brew, too. I mean, we're talking mason jars and, yeah. So what did it start as? What, like... For example, your father, mm -hmm. just an example of wine. Mm -hmm. What did it start as? Grapes? Yeah. Okay. And the beer, was that traditional like barley or was it rice? With or? beer, he was able to just basically bring back beer making components okay. from the States on vacation. You know, they the customs guys really had no idea what they were looking sure. at and it wasn't obvious. You Boy, know? that guy really likes his barley. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, some Americans are did weird. Did you see all the hops he had? <laughs> He's got six bags full of hops. What's going on? Um but yeah, so <laughs> the original craft brewers, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> that's the, what I'm saying. Actually, you think about all the microbrews and how that's really in. I'm, I grew up with basically everybody's house a potentially explosive microbrew. I know. I mean, it's like a mint. What was the old Simpson episode? Who's got the bathtub mint and julep? Totally. Yep. <laughs> well, you know, man, you couldn't do a lot there. You know, it was pretty restricted and certainly for adults. That's one of the reasons they kicked kids out when we graduated from ninth grade. They didn't want teenagers living over there because there's nothing for us to do. Everything's illegal. What now? The children of the corn do you? What now? Uh, basically, when you graduated from ninth grade. Four people got that joke, by the way. Yeah, I was one of them. I know. That's why I said it. I'm going, he'll get that. They sent you out of the country. Would, would Menudo be better? Because they, <laughs> they did the same thing to Menudo, but that's like older than children of the corn. So... <laughs> Oh, Backstreet Boys. Oh, MTV VJs. Oh, Who else kicks you out God, when you're 18? Now we're, now we're dating ourselves here. Well, no. I mean, that's... No, there's got to be other things <laughs> that kick you out when you get a certain age. Well, you know, basically it went to ninth grade and then they would pay to either send you to a boarding school, which and is what most... Went I went to a boarding school. Okay. Or you, some, some of my friends basically moved back to the States so they went and lived with grandparents, you know, whatever. Okay. And then, um, and that was, it had to do with the alcohol, huh? Yeah, I think so. Because think about it. Yeah. I mean, by ninth grade, most of us were functioning alcoholics or at least starting to be, <laughs> there's nothing else to do, man. Okay. So here's my question is it's forbidden in Saudi Arabia, the country mm -hmm. it's forbidden in Dahran. Mm -hmm. And, you know, actually now most of the, you know, most of the crew camps and, and temporary housing and man camps, what they were formerly called, you can't drink on them. They're now. dry. Oh, they're completely Are you dry. Me? Oh, it's, it's like an army base. Dude, prohibition has never worked ever. So, well, they, they're most, but it's through the companies oh, and, I'm then, sure. and then the temporary housing people, they, they honor and respect the operators you know Halliburton's rules it's a liability like. thing yeah it's it is in fact uh, a lot of them they can get their um out in the parking lot they can have dogs go through and sniff I mean like when I go to an oil operator's office yeah it's like going through customs I can have my car searched anytime I'm yeah. well aware of that as yeah. just as a reporter mm -hmm. you know I mean that's just the way I mean you're talking about serious stuff here. Well, yeah, you're talking about industrial sabotage potential. That's what I'm and saying. I mean, yeah. our news story from last week about us just a can of spray paint now can shut down forty five hundred homes my mind. with heat. Yeah. So, you know, it's 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 real stuff. So uh, it doesn't surprise me, I guess, the more I'm thinking about this, that Dahran would be dry, too. Mm -hmm. Down in Kentucky, we still have dry counties yeah. that, to this day, right? Mm -hmm. I believe we still do in yeah. some of the Bible Belt. So when we take a look at this, um, 
How did you guys, was it you had to drink in your house or, because well, if you were out in public, yeah, I mean, it you would didn't... be very noticeable, <laughs> especially in a place where no one is drunk. There was a lot of places we found. I mean, you know, it was behind the school. It was, you know, it was in our cars in a parking lot. It was at the house because mom and dad were at another party. Well, how about the adults though? They would have lots of parties. My folks, okay. I, that's what I remember is, is every weekend, my folks either going to a party or having a party. Okay. 30 or 40 people over and all of them just shit faced by the end of the night sure yeah i got pictures of my dad passed out on the landing of the stairs <laughs> but you know they worked hard they played hard That's, man <laughs> why do you think we call the show play hard work hard because we start by yeah. playing hard and then we do our interview later say it's with lance medlin with Meridian Energy Group, but you know that's that's the industry, mm-hmm. and exactly that's the way it's always been, yep. and that's the life I've always known. That's why I one another reason why I gravitated towards it because I love that work hard, play hard mentality. I yep. mean, it's just it shows passion all around. Uh, the other question I had: so what would happen if you got caught? Depends on who you got caught by. Okay, so let's start within the compound. Yeah, okay. in the compound there was there was there was a private security firm. Right. that worked there. Uh, and of course, we had all kinds of crazy rumors about them as kids. But about the worst thing they'd ever do is stop you and check your ID, mm-hmm. make sure you actually belonged on the compound. Uh, I know a couple of my friends that got busted with with booze, but the security guards either usually just confiscated it or poured it out. Yeah, so it was only if you got busted off camp that you could really screw things up for so, your family. let's go to there because, yeah. you know, a lot of people in North Dakota are familiar with Iran. Right. Where uh, the girl I graduated with, Roxana Saberi, she got taken into Iranian custody. Oh, geez. Okay, yeah, she's that CNN reporter or the freelance reporter. Mm-hmm. She had a bottle of wine in her backpack. <laughs> and so they tried to try her for being mm-hmm. a uh, spy mm-hmm. even. And so we've, of course, we're very, kind of familiar with some of the things. Yeah. So what would happen if, you know, say you were out with your buddies and you guys had a bottle of, what, what did you call it? Sadiki? Sadiki. Sadiki. And we used to hide it in Pepsi cans, right? So you'd, you'd mix okay. it in with some Pepsi can. You'd light the top on fire because like I said, it's about 100 proof. Oh uh, and then, yeah, you just cruise around. With that, light the top on fire. <laughs> well, you know, you get that little overflow, right? Oh yeah, we, yeah, yeah. You know fact, what I'm talking about? Uh, when Zima came out, do you remember oh, Zima? God, yeah. We would put that in Seven Up bottles and then bring that into basketball games. There you go. Yeah. yeah. See, I always thought they made Zima so that you could take the wrapper off and pretend it was something else, like Perrier or something. I always thought they were trying to get people away from beer and yeah. booze. It was well, there like, was like this this whole thing into clear liquid yeah, beverages in yeah. that time period. Invisible cola? Yeah. The crystal, crystal Pepsi. Clear Pepsi? Yeah, crystal meth Pepsi. Did Coke try that? I don't think so. I think they... They managed to dodge that particular <laughs> bullet. Yeah. What I want to see is I want to see Dark 7-Up. Dark 7-Up? Yeah, I want to, you know, this 7-Up, I want it to be like black. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I never even thought of that Maybe before. they do that. I don't know. Did you guys have uh, soda over there? Uh, originally, we when I lived over there the first almost decade, we did not have Coca-Cola, but we did have Pepsi. You did not? I would have thought it would have been the exact opposite. No, there was a whole list of companies because of their either relations with Israel or other political factors that okay. were not allowed in the country. So we had a knockoff that was called Coca-K. Coca-K? Came in a red can. What kind of hydrax is this? This was good stuff, man. This was it, They used real sugar. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Coca-K. Yeah. So if you're, you know, growing up with that, pow. It was like jolt, man. What kind of... Uh... Okay, so there was no alcohol from the States. So no. you could not get Jack Daniels. You could not get Jim Beam. People did smuggle stuff in. 
And there was kind of a black market that I was aware of where occasionally you could pay about 60, 70 bucks and maybe get a fifth of Jack mm -hmm. or something like that. But to tell you the truth, most of us that would fly back there would be flying on British Airways or KLM or any one of those other airlines where uh, the age to drink was 16, right? If that's if they carted you at all and it was free. So most of us would get, you know, do our drinking on the plane flight there. Was pot a thing then? No, but there were, uh, actually pot was really rare over there, but cannabis but ha hash was prevalent. Hash. Hash was everywhere. That. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In uh, fact, you could get hash much easier than you could get pot. I would there. think. Yeah. yeah. Cause just because of the, the smuggling ability behind it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, and from Europe, I I only know the second hand, of course. Well, but, well you yeah. weren't old enough to yeah. probably know a lot of that no, stuff. No. Not until you went to boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> they give it to you when you walk in. <laughs> Uh, well, liberal. Hey, that's well, a liberal you know, joke. Come on. Where's the peanut gallery well, on that one? You know, okay. yeah, growing up in a in a very conservative country, and we did a lot of wild stuff. Well, we of course. Fun, you know, and it, that was, Dude, like I said, I was living I next door. Well, yeah. That was another thing. We had to hide our religion over there, right? I went to a Catholic school, so I mean, play hard, work hard. Trust yeah. me, you know? I mean, that's... Well, <laughs> I can yeah. tell that guilt you're carrying. <laughs> I used to snurf and things like that. I mean, that was where you, do you know what snurfing is? What is snurfing? So snurfing, when we were kids, we would uh, wait for the parking lots to get icy like this, okay? Okay. Uh, like it is here in, in North Dakota where we had, and in parking lots, that's not difficult. Basically, it just snows and, and you've got a pretty slick parking yeah, lot. Yeah, give it for, a day. For a while. So when parents would come and pick their kids up, we would, without being caught, quick, Go behind the car and grab onto the bumper. Oh, jeez! And oh man, we would see how fast and how long we could hang on to the oh, bumper. Oh yeah! And if we could go more than a block, of course, we were a champion. Right. If you could make it out of the parking lot, you were, you know, you were intermediate or intermediate level or something <laughs> like that. Thinking back now, how did most of those end? I, I, I am amazed. Nobody got hurt. Nobody yeah. got exhaust poison. Nobody, Cracked skull. Oh, we were. I mean, there were wipeouts. Yeah, there were wipeouts. Man, you got going fast. You want to let go, mm -hmm. and you wanted to try to get past the car so that the <laughs> so dad you wave at him oh, as you're going by we would have dads who would freak out because they didn't know what to do because they don't want to stop yeah. the car because then <laughs> you'd smack it so they'd have to roll the window down let go they'd start yelling at us you know and then of course the wives were yelling and oh, we were man. laughing because we were kids and oh good times man that's the kind of stuff that gives me a heart attack as a parent now we got to talk about what you guys would do as, uh, as kids sometime for mischievous fun because i just told you the snurf story and lots of fire mainly yeah and i i saw there was a uh, series on netflix about how kids that grew up in the 80s and 90s well that'll never happen again thank because god there was just enough communication to give you freedom but mm -hmm. not enough to keep tabs on you yeah you know you could when i grew up we did not have cell phones. We did not have cordless phones. We didn't. We had to pay for long distance phone calls. Yeah. Okay, so it was very common to say "see you at dinner." Yeah, and you'd leave lunch. Or you're on. Call your own, me by six, or yeah. and either you were home by dinner, mm -hmm. or somebody called and notified your parents that you were going to be eating dinner somewhere else, or you'd ask your parents yep. or whatever. And during the day, it wouldn't be uncommon for us to go hang out and play on the train tracks, which was a bridge over a river. Yeah, trestle up there 50 yeah. feet above the water. Yeah. If, yeah. If, the, if the train comes, well, I guess we better climb down a little bit, hang on, yeah. or 
jump in the river and die. You know, we, we figured it out. Yeah. Well, at that age, you don't really have any concept, any concept of mortality. No, but but you also don't want to commit suicide either. Yeah. You know, you have this ability to kind of go with your gut a little bit more, you know? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, uh, we'll have to talk about how you did that in Saudi Arabia (laughs) because, well, I would imagine the second you left the compound, like there was this whole, I, I, I might not come back. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, a couple of times, but yeah. I'm serious. If you guys are having duck and cover drills because the refinery might get bombed at any time because of Iran. and Well, uh, you know, just like you're talking about, I didn't think about it. Not one, you know, going down back alleys in Cobar to buy switchblades and bottle rockets and never once thinking that I could have been abducted, killed, mugged. That's never so once. funny because that, that's the stuff that I would do too in Tijuana when I, when I was down in California. Never thought I'd be a problem one time. But you know what? You, you go for a walk on the beach, you're kind of looking around like, this is too safe. Right. <laughs> but, you know, back alley, Tijuana, Saudi Arabia, no problem. We just problem. didn't even think about it, man. These are my people. I, I know these people yeah, just exactly. fine. Because when you work hard, play hard, you can identify with your kind, right? That's right. It's man. about a kinship, a kindred spirit. It's about a lot of energy. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a brief pause. When we come back, we're going to continue. The conversation here on Play Hard, Work Hard. That is Sterling. My name is Jason Spies. This is the Crude Life Media Network. Life. Play hard, work hard. It's sponsored in part by... If you have natural gas leases and are looking to sell them, Swan Energy wants to talk to you today. Give them a call at 866-539-0860. That's 866-539-0860. Swan Energy is buying up natural gas leases and they may buy yours too. Give them a call today. The Industrial Forest. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. Welcome back to the Cool Life Play Hard, Work Hard Morning Show. My name is Jason Spies. That is Sterling. And we're going to get into news... News, as they news. taught me in journalism school, you say news, news, not news. Don't don't sound like you're from Wisconsin or Minnesota. Why not? And you don't want to sound like you're from Boston. So it's a news Tuesday. That's how you say it. So all right, what do we got today? You in the sound news? very proper. Let me, let me, all right, let me this is from, uh, this is from Austin American Statesman. Uh, here's how Joe Biden's climate plan could affect the oil and gas industry in Texas. 
So they're talking about uh, Joe Biden has outlined an ambitious environmental agenda centered around a goal of transitioning. There's that word again, away from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, in some respects, the writing has been on the wall when it comes to the future of environmental policy and big oil and gas companies were contemplating their role in a net zero carbon future before Biden's election. But in Texas, where small independent operators play a significant role in oil production, Biden's policies could pack more of a punch. Be interesting to see how it works out because, you know, uh, right away I think of the Obama administration, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, primarily because he was a part of it. So you would think that he would understand that I think it was 10% of the GDP from 2010 to 2015 came from shale, mm -hmm. came from oil and gas. So when you had the, such a large portion of, you know, your essentially his presidency, he was part of the Obama administration. So when, when you take a look at that, to attack that, that's that's peculiar from one side. I think that's why he pulled away from it eventually and said transition. Yeah, I think so. so secondly, um, in 2016, it was the Obama administration that lifted the export ban mm -hmm. because, if my memory serves me correctly, I believe Obama did say this that for geopolitical reasons, there was, a, I mean, that was one of the reasons was to have the ability to become a major player geopolitically worldwide instead of being beholden to Saudi and Russia. Yeah. So, yeah. And anyway. we've seen that over the last 20 years, that transition from us being a net importer, you know, to being able to be uh, self-sufficient in regards to natural gas. Yeah. And, and I, to me, I get the idea that, you know, America should, you know, just have its own. But I, for me, I've always looked at it just from the continent standpoint is that, if you can keep the energy on the continent, you're doing really well. So, you know, Mexico, Canada, you got this free flow and pipelines, everything else. That to me is the perfect world. You know, that that's how you get it done. Because first of all, they're your neighbors. So you shouldn't be at war with them anyways. You should be figuring out how to work collectively. Absolutely. And you got no river or, or you got no body of water between you. So um, anyway. Uh, well, and it makes it less likely that we would have serious disagreements if we're all sort of connected in on that grid, you know. Does that say anything about cap and trade in there, by the way? No, but they do talk about okay, the policy good. proposals. So, we, we put cap and trade <laughs> to bed finally? Or? No, but they're talking about like the Biden policy proposals would include required disclosure of climate risk from public companies. It does talk about climates. Okay. Yep, a commitment to end new drilling permits for federal lands. A pledge to eliminate tax subsidies for the oil and gas industry. Now, I know he's trying to spend $2 trillion on clean energy initiatives. I do know that. So if there's oil and gas companies that are doing solar and wind, they're going to mm -hmm. benefit from that. So, I mean, that's kind of, I guess, what I took, take from that. I mean, there, there are going to be quite a few companies that do benefit from the Biden administration. Yeah. Whether they're able to afford it or not, I don't know. Well, companies that are able to either make that transition or already have that capability, sure. You know, but when they start talking, and that goes back to my whole point about it, is it, it, it's the smaller operators that I worry about the most. You know, they're the people, obviously, that get pushed out easiest when we have a pandemic, you know, or when we've got some other kind of global recession going on. You know, and then they bear the the large the larger brunt of the attack on the social pressuring, on regulation, on sort of just the, you know, the, the considered evil because they're part of oil and gas industry. I do think the uh, you know a lot of talk about the Permian. I think the Marcellus is going to be such a wild card 
because of New York's ban on natural gas. And then you've got, okay, so you've got Ohio. What do you got? West Virginia. You've got, uh, what else? Pennsylvania. So you've got some pretty significant states up there that are swing states and they're blue. You know what I mean? There's yeah. just so much political there, and yet there's so much from a natural gas side because mm-hmm. the Marcellus is a big natural gas play. And I don't. I think that's going to be an interesting next four years. The Marcellus, absolutely, I, I see. do because yeah. New York's going to come to the reality that banning natural gas is not as easy as it sounds. Geez, just the logistics of converting current natural gas <laughs> systems just boggles the mind, you know? Doesn't it really? It uh, really does. Paris Climate Accord. That was the name of that G, whatever. I oh, that's what you were looking Paris for. Paris Climate Accord. I don't know why. That's that apparently just came a to day me. one. That's a day one, I think. That, that, that's the thing I was trying to think of yeah. before. So, all right, yeah. what do we got next for a news story? Well, you know, kind of keeping in that uh, vein of what's going to happen with a new administration coming in. This is uh, interesting from the governor of Wyoming. Mark Gordon. Yeah. Wyoming will push back against any federal regulations brought by the Biden administration that hinder development of fossil fuels and other resources, Governor Mark Gordon told state lockmakers, kicking off their annual session Tuesday. Two things, three things. Governor Mark Gordon is scheduled to be on our program next week. Really? Awesome. Yes. Uh, About this very topic. Yeah. I saw the news release about six days ago. It came out five, six days ago, something like that. So I'm glad there's a story circulating around now about it. Yeah, this is from AP. And Associated Press. And so we, of course, reached out to his people. His people said, absolutely, let's just work out the logistics. This week, he's really busy, so we're, we're looking at Monday or Tuesday next week. And number two, I've got a photo of Mark Gordon where he's holding like an AK-47 with a couple people on each side of him. <laughs> so I'd take his words and listen to him. I'm not saying that that's what he's going to do, but right. I'm just saying. You can tell he's committed. The dude's committed, right. Yep. And Passionate, so, right? Um, yep. Well, yeah, I think, was, I mean, he's probably just sort of the first. I bet you, you know, you're talking about these different states, the blue states, the red states, the swing states, and how the politics affect the industries, you know, are we going to see nothing but solar and, and hybrid turbines on the East Coast and nothing but natural gas on the interior and solar on the West? I mean, I don't know. What I don't understand is at some point, if the climate activists get their way, do they really expect oil and gas workers to go to work, get shamed every day just so that solar panels can get made? Yeah. Because you see what I mean? Because the the solar panels and the wind turbines, without oil and gas, they're not made. They're just not they're, made. They're not made. They're not transported. They're no. not installed. So, <laughs> and so, actually, they're not powered. Generally, I mean, they're they're they do use power. At, at some point, your mind kind of turns into that blackjack dealer from Vegas Vacation, where he finally says <laughs> to Chevy Chase. I'll tell you what, why don't you come over here, give me your money, and I'll kick you in the balls. <laughs> I mean, at some point, you kind of self-reflect, and you're like, you know, I'm just getting picked on here now. Mm-hmm. This is just, this is me. <laughs> so, well, you see what I mean? To where, at some point, the, the, the disconnect has to stop. Yeah. And there needs to be a collaboration, a coexistence, and an understanding of how to get together. And I think actually Mark Gordon's on to something here by saying, listen, I'll fight this because, first of all, they just went through the coal battle, okay? And, and it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. They, they were 
you know, they're still trying to figure out how that, how to navigate that. Now, Wyoming has a lot of natural gas, especially over on the Western side. And so they, they've got natural gas without oil. Yeah. And that is significant. So when you start lumping in all that stuff together, that's a dangerous, slippery slope that nobody understands. And I know Mark Gordon understands that. So yeah. that's, I think, where he's coming from. But does he say any quotes or anything along those lines in the story? Uh, let's see. He highlighted successes in getting through the past year, including record tourism. He's talking about uh, federal lands delivered nearly all of $1.25 billion allocated it uh, through the coronavirus relief. So they've returned that. Um, My guess, a lot of it's going to be the federal land fight. That seems to be what's shaping up. You know, I mean, well, there, she's Wyoming is mostly yeah. federal. Well, like we were talking about on one of the other shows is that, you know, you've got these certain states where, yeah, you've got a large percentage of federal land or they have enough of a claim in a certain area that it becomes, you know, you have to go through the permit process. I mean, they even do uranium mm -hmm. in Wyoming. And so I don't know if that's under fire, too. Yeah. Anything mining is right. I mean, right now, I, I, it seems, yeah. you know, that any, any sort of uh, industrial sort of progress if that's still a term that can be used. That's why I'd like to see a counter to somebody like Greta is being kids from the industry, people that are, you know, their mom, their dad work in it. They're starting to work in it. You know, people that they actually, that this is their life. This is their living. Like the junior frackers? Yeah, something like that. The freedom was it, juices? Was, it, was the fr fr junior frackers, was that real or was I, that a Simpsons was, thing? I think that was a Simpsons. Okay, because I don't know if that was, <laughs> I don't remember. Because I've got a picture in a barbershop quartet now. I love the name. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I think that'd be, a, you know, the junior frackers, that's a great <laughs> baseball team name or whatever. Oh, totally. I know, it's a great name. <laughs> you should trademark that quick. Frackleberry Hound is your mascot. So, well, good for Mark Gordon, by the way, and... I was at a conference with him a few years ago. He came and he spoke, and I got to meet him. Nice guy. Uh, like I said, I got a great photo of him with a, somebody had this just unbelievable uh, gun. And so they got a picture backstage, you know, where select people are supposed to be. Sure, so the green room. He, he didn't do this out in public. He did this, but it's been circulating around social media a few times. So that's the world we live in. You know, there's, yeah. there's no more back rooms anymore. No, there isn't. Everything just is... Just back alleys. Yeah, just back alleys. All right, let's and go to the next internets. story here on our Let's do news. something fun, right? Okay, so this is interesting. Rumors uh, and newspeak. From the Chicago, uh, Chicago Tribune. Man lived inside Chicago's O'Hare Airport for three months before Love detection, this. prosecutors say. Right? So a California man who police said claimed to be too afraid to fly due to COVID-19. That's interesting in itself hid out for three months in a secured area so it wasn't like he was just walking around the airport he's in the back where you have to have a badge i mean because apparently that is much more clean and safe than an airplane for a few hours okay that's yeah <laughs> i mean really right <laughs> listen to this the the cook county judge Susanna Ortez reacted incredulously Sunday after a prosecutor detailed the allegations. So if I understand you correctly, Ortez said, you're telling me that an unauthorized non-employee individual was allegedly living within a secure part of the O'Hare Airport terminal from October 19, 2020 to January 16, 2021 and was not detected. I want to understand you correctly. <laughs> By the way, props to what was who did that? What was the quote from? This is from the judge. <laughs> Fantastic yeah. quote. I mean, that right there, 
yeah. says the whole thing in perspective, especially when you fold in. I mean, what do we have? Duck Dynasty last week crashed the White House, and now we've got... We, well, we've, you know, apparently... We've got a California slacker hanging yeah. out in the airport. What's going on? With He's our, no history of criminal activity. What, what's going on with the trillions of dollars that was spent into airport security? That, well, you think about... Apparently, he was using a badge that he claims he found. It was reported missing... He was using it. That's how if he, he was able to get in and out of secure areas. That's if he was stopped by anybody, he had that badge. That's worse. Well, it just, it makes no, you no, no, like, well, yeah, you and I are joking about it, but you think about, geez, is it that easy? So is if, it that friggin' easy to well, get back there? If, if I report that my car is stolen yeah, and the cops see it drive by five times a day, they don't stop it. Right. So if somebody reports a badge stolen. Talk about and, some disconnect and there. And that badge which yeah. my, my guess is is somewhat electronic now. Yeah, I'm guessing. But it had so, a face, you know, it's <laughs> That's amazing yeah. to me that he was able to just circumvent and navigate through that system in today's day and age where just you got facial scanners. I mean, yeah. right? And he lived there apparently just off of the charity of other passengers getting them food. What now? He lived. Uh, he no. What do you mean getting him food? He got his food from other passengers. Okay. So people okay. that were in the airport. So he would, you know, go out into the terminals and stuff like that. Apparently, no criminal background. He's got a master's degree in hospitality and is currently unemployed, which makes sense in the COVID times. I wonder how he got the food then, because I mean, obviously, he didn't tell people he was living there. He probably said that he got you know, laid over for a day or something, I would imagine, because you don't want to tell too much of that story because somebody's going to go narc you off. Right. Right? Yeah, you'd think so. But if it's like a 24-hour layover unexpected, I suppose, I would, yeah, I'd buy the guy Looks like he got out with a $1,000 bail and a promise to never step foot in the airport again. I don't think he should be in any trouble. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think he should be in any trouble. I think everybody at that place should be in trouble. He, he should be commended for... Showing all the cracks in the system, to be honest. Yep. She <laughs> he's, was. The, he's, he's Leonardo DiCaprio from Come Catch Me, Come Tom catch, Hanks. Catch me if you can, or Tom Hanks with Terminal. <laughs> oh, that's right. He, he even played that guy too, didn't he? So yeah, so oh. he gets a thousand dollar bang, you know. But the 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 judge is like being in a secured part of the airport under a fake ID badge, allegedly based upon the need for airports to be absolutely secure so that people feel safe to travel. I do find these alleged actions do make him a danger to the community. So I think what she's saying is I basically have to punish you because this needs to not happen. No, I, I get where she's coming from because she's saying we're not setting a precedent here. Yeah. I'm going to give you about as minor as a fine as I can yeah. um, because I can't set a precedent because someone may actually ill and intentionally do what you just i'm guessing there's all kinds of what, phone calls and heads rolling there i mean from the airport to the actual chicago police i mean because that's a serious potential security breach see now this is where i think the media has a golden opportunity that guy could have been walking in and out and planting bombs for three months so if you're the media i truly believe that people would want to see the d dissection the decompression of how duck dynasty invaded the white house and how that guy did that in the terminal okay 
I'm talking about a six-week series. Yeah, Ken Burns is going to be busy ta- this right. year. I'm talking something like that, Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. Right, okay? right, yeah. Where, where they sit down and they interview the security people, and then they fact-check it, mm-hmm. and then they go back to the security tapes, and they... I'm, I'm, I think people would really be interested in that. Yeah, but I'm absolutely. talking about a news journalist. Well, think about it. With, with this guy is probably about 99% of the time he was in there, except when he was in a bathroom, he was on video somewhere. Like just what I said. I would love to know the stories he told the passengers. Yeah. So go interview the passengers yeah. and find out, you know, so what story did he sell you? I mean, that... That's a that's one show right there yeah. on six. Just interviewing the passengers. Yeah, you think he did a different story every time? Did he use the truth? Right. I mean, yeah. So I mean, I that, that's that's very mm-hmm. peculiar. Well, we and, should see if we can get him on. And same thing at the White House. Yeah. I would sit down and interview everybody in the Secret Service down to the secretary to find out how the heck that happened. Where. Yeah. A bunch of people that were dressed in costumes. I mean, I say Duck Dynasty. I'm not kidding. Those guys dressed like they were a part of some sort of reality show. Yeah. Yeah, they did. I yeah. mean... It, or I, Water Buffalo Lodge members. I wasn't sure. That guy was fantastic. I mean, did he... What was his name in the end? Was it Viking guy? Uh, QAnon Shaman, I think. Oh, was he a QAnon guy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, see, now I'm in reruns because I do remember I said the same yeah. exact thing last time. He's in jail and he's Q-Anon crying is. for his organic food. Is that, that's, the, that's the pizza place, the pizza portal uh, sex ring? Uh, I think, yeah, like Satanist, pedophile, global but vampires But it's out of the, it's out of the pizza something. place, right? I think, that was, I think that was apparently one of the places they thought that stuff was happening. Yeah, out of okay. A basement of a single-story restaurant. I can't keep him straight, dude. Yeah. I just can't keep him straight, and I apologize for that because I just... Yeah, it just turns into word garbage at that point. You know, it's like conspiracy theories. You can just oh, it does. go on and on and on. And, and the media's got to come up with some clever saying for everything. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, come on, dude. We live in a country that if you can put it on a bumper sticker, you can win an election. That's true. You can. Mm-hmm. Well, less is more. Less is more. Which reminds me, we should probably do less is more as well. <laughs> all right, folks. That's going to do it for news. Is that it for news, right? That was it. That's, that's it for news. And uh, Frackleberry Hound's actually sleeping. I heard that. Oh, there you go. She got yeah, up. She heard me. All right, folks, that's going to do it. We're going to work hard. Coming up next, Lance Medlin with Meridian Energy Group for some ESG talk, environmental social governance. And I'm going to ask him about the ESG score and the ESG credit and, and if that's a real thing and what his opinion is. They've been doing it for seven, eight, ten years now. So coming up next, that is Sterling. My name is Jason Speaks. Some falls down now, it's pixie dust. I carry what I need, baby, you I can trust I carry a note in the pocket of life And a pencil and erase by my Crew
Midlife with Jason Spies. Thank you for joining the program today. If you want to look at America, you go to Permian and the Bakken, and, and that's what America should be, united as one. And that's exactly what we are. And, and then, you know, that's what I love about the oil and gas industry. One county in Kansas, one single county, produced 9% of the world's oil. That was oil that won World War One, As the British said from the floor of Parliament, the Allies floated to victory on a sea of oil. Works picked up here in the Permian Basin. Yeah, leadership really needs to take a look at how we've been doing things and constantly make changes in how we can do things better. Commodities are always, 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 any commodity business, whether it's milk or whether it's oil or whether it's apples, they always are boom or bust because the solution to low prices is high prices, the solution to high prices is, you know, is high prices. It's a big issue. You know, it's kind of red riding hood syndrome here. People making out the industry to be the big bad wolf. And on top of that, you know, you would get a nice increase in pay, as I'm sure most of us all know. When you move to oil field areas, you get a, a nice little bump in pay. After him and I having five margaritas over at the Cork and Pig, I called my boyfriend and I was like, hey, do you want to move to Texas? And he was like, yeah, when, when are we moving? <laughs> and honestly, we moved about a month after that. This oil and gas industry, I've met some of the best people I've ever met in my life doing this. Play hard, work hard. Now let's work hard. This is Lance Medlin with Meridian Energy Group. Thank you very much for joining the program here today. Meridian Energy Group spearheading the Davis Refinery as well as the Walton Refinery. Is that the second refinery in Texas? The Walton Refinery in Winkler County? I got I got to be honest, I'm mixing my W's up here because I didn't write it down. Help me out, Lance. Where are we at with the refinery? Sorry to jump right into it right away. Yeah, no, no worries. Thanks for having me on. I yeah. appreciate the, uh, the both the topic and your time. Um, so Davis Refinery, North Dakota, Walton Station in, in West Texas, and uh, their Walton. development in in Oklahoma. Oh, okay. So, all right. So th- there's a Kermit, Texas as well, too, right? That's the Walton Refinery? That is. So Kermit, Texas is um, inside Winkler, Winkler County. And uh, so, you know, when we refer to either Winkler County or we refer to Kermit, it's we're, we're talking about the same place. Okay, that's what I figured. That's what I thought. I wanted to make sure I had my ducks in a row. So I'm going to reset here real quick for the people listening. We're talking with Lance Midland from Meridian Energy Group, who is spearheading the Davis Refinery in the Bakken in North Dakota, right outside of Belfield, North Dakota. And then we've got also the Walton Refinery outside of Kermit, Texas, in Winkler County. And then also it sounds like one to be in Oklahoma as well. But we won't get too much into that. I just wanted to drop the Texas one because I know you guys have been working on it for a few years because I wanted to set the table a little bit about the amount of work that has gone in to this ESG movement on your be- on your company's behalf. Um, I know I've been covering it personally for over five years. And from the last, you know, three, four, at least five years, this has been a pretty serious topic within your guys' evolving business plan. Is that a fair statement to say? Yeah, it's a fair statement to say. It's, a, it's an evolving business plan for the entire industry. Um, less so... Our stance is that it's less so for Meridian than it is probably for existing refiners, existing producers. Um, the uh, the ESG governance that, that you see coming from Equator Principles uh, is not a distraction or, destroy, or, or uh, a different path than what Meridian was founded on. So it's an easy 
it's an easy transformation for for Meridian. Yeah, and I think that's fair to say too that you know by evolving, it's more of a, I guess maybe the word dynamic might be a little bit more appropriate because I, I'm not trying to put a negative connotation. I'm trying to. I guess put in some context because when you take a look at the major operators, you know, the big three or big four, or even the big dozen, they're rewriting their ESG uh, reports within their business or their shareholder reports and they're doubling and tripling in size over the last couple of years. You guys have been doing it from day one. And by, by being dynamic, it's just that you guys are just adding on. It's not even so much rewriting as much as adding on, you know, talking with some of the different, you know, uh, contractors that you guys are working with, some of the different partners. It's amazing to understand the ESG movement, how it can go into uh, just a, you know, a refinery is something as simple as the, the, the bend of a pipe, for example, some things like that. So I, I find it very exciting. So help us understand, I guess, where you guys started with this ESG movement so long ago, even before the ESG term was even there because you guys did set out from day one and you can go back on the crude life and listen, you guys set out to have the cleanest refinery on the planet. So talk to me a little bit about the dedication in the, in, in the beginning to this uh, uh, just clean energy and what eventually became, I guess, the ESG term. Right. So ESG is, is, you know, a set of, a set of governing principles. So everyone knows that ESG by this point in time, you're probably familiar with the, uh, initialism meaning environmental, social, and corporate governance. So a set of governance standards for your company. For Meridian, we're the first full conversion refinery to ever be permitted as a synthetic miner source. Uh, so, you know, even at the conception or even at the, uh, the initial permit application, we, we were able to show the industry that you can uh, produce diesel, gasoline, other refined products without making a major emissions footprint and so that was the first so that was the dna of our esg coming forth in our initial permit and then the way that we've developed the project with sustainability reviews uh environmental impact reviews talking to our neighbors being uh, talking to the neighbors even in a social stance saying okay well what are some of the issues that you would be concerned with i'll, I'll give you one example that's outside of an emissions profile uh, illumination. Uh, there was concern that you know a big facility like a refinery would would produce too much light uh, and be a distraction. It would be a, a visual uh, a, a visual nuisance for um, the city of Belfield. So we designed into our engineering standards engineering standards downward facing LEDs that have limited uh, illumination uh, so that it's not a, a visual nuisance. You know, part of ESG is not just what the environmental impacts are, but it's the S of the ESG as well. Social, what are the social impacts? And and we can go into, uh, we can go far down that road. And, and I'd like to introduce and talk about Meridian's brand green. So packaging up our ESG product, our ESG uh, corporate governance is, it's not so much rewriting and it's not so much adding on. It's really just unveiling. So we put our environmental social management plan on our website uh, sometime last year. And this was a document um, that describes how we manage our environmental and social governance, corporate governance practices. Our ESMP, the environmental and social management plan, we decided to make that public um, because a lot of our contractors, partners, they started asking, okay, well, you guys have done well with this. 
um, you know, do you mind sharing some of those documents with us? So we did. We, we just made them public. Um, our, our ESG charter, our, our minutes of meeting from our ESG committee, uh, all of it's public. And you can actually just go on our website, click on the ESG tab, and, and download it all and, and view it all. And I encourage others to, you know, if you don't have a mature environmental and social management plan, use ours as a template. Uh, I'm, I, we're perfectly fine with just taking ours and putting your name on it. Uh, we think we have a pretty good program, and, and we encourage others to use it as well. Wanted to ask you about the receptivity when it comes to the ESG movement. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to just go, you know, outside of, you know, baseball a little bit, inside baseball, I guess, and, and talk about some off-the-record conversations that I've had over the years that are now basically on the record and, and, and um, across headlines and that sort of thing. Number one is the investment side. Uh, I know that being an early adapter sometimes to, you know, these new sort of ideologies is sometimes becomes a very difficult to, you know, find those early, other early adapters that can see the forest from the trees, so to speak. And then the other one is, and I'm glad you brought up the social side of thing, which is there is a social component. And I don't know how much you guys have disclosed about, you know, some of the things happening within, but I know I've had a lot of conversations about trees with your folks at Meridian and working with some of the, the different officials and just trying to get some of the due diligence done. So I don't want to disclose much on what you guys have going on. I just wanted to highlight that. You guys have been talking about that social side for four, five, six years too, with me anyways, off the record, because uh, we've used part of that as our industrial forest, helping those guys out. So, you know, we feel it's very important on like the tree standpoint. And that's, that's just one example of that social part of the ESG, the environmental social governance side. So um, how are you finding the receptivity of things, being an early adapter? I mean, you guys are out there looking for investors, you know, on a daily basis because you work in oil and gas. But on the flip side, you have to be conscious of that social side of things too. So, you know, every which way you turn, someone's going to be commenting. <laughs> Sorry. Just curious about receptivity. I'm not sure if that question came out or not. Yeah, no, you're right to bring it up. So I think I think the main the main takeaway that I took from that that question was about receptivity in, in specifically in the downstream industry. So, you know, our perception is that, um, is that the downstream industry specifically out of oil and gas upstream and midstream has not been receptive to the, uh, to the insistence of the changing economies and the changing, uh, um, global economies that, that we take a more environmental and social proactive approach. I don't think that the downstream industry has been receptive to that at all. I, I tell you um, what, I agree it, with you, by the way. I do agree with you uh, from our firsthand knowledge as well and experience. So I just, I wanted to validate what you're saying. So continue. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but just go No, ahead. no, that's fine. Um, and it's surprising to me because we, we've seen it coming. The downstream industry should have seen this coming for for many, many years because it didn't start in downstream. It started in upstream. A lot of major capital projects, deep water offshore projects, were, uh, were found themselves with new regulations, new environmental uh, environmental and social regulations that the midstream and downstream sectors didn't have because of a lack of new money coming into it. 
um, lack of new major projects, new major midstream projects, new major downstream projects. Upshore, I'm sorry, upstream, specifically offshore, deep water developments were the first first major capital projects to see the, the push for a more mindful ESG approach. Um, that transitioned into midstream as capitals began to be deployed into new developments, the Dakota Pipeline, Gobble, for example, Dakota Access Pipeline. That was uh, a, that should have been a massive indicator to the entire industry that new major capital projects, new money coming into new developments has to be thoughtful from an environmental and social perspective. Now you're seeing it downstream and uh, you know, I would change the word receptive to reactive as new requirements or new expectations are placed. The industry, by necessity, has to be reactive to them. But being reactive, being receptive, it's it's not the same. It's not the same as being proactive and setting the standard. And that's what at Meridian we have tried to do from day one: is set a new standard. Um, we we package the entirety of our ESG portfolio into. Um, a new business unit called Brand Green, B-R-A-N-D Green. We, uh, we tossed around, you know, several different naming ideas, and we thought, well, what do we want to be known for? Do we want to be known as a refining company, someone who produces refined products? Or do we want our brand to be that whatever it is we do, we do it with the consciousness set towards environmental and social development? And so Brand Green is a portfolio of all of our ESG activities, documents, philosophies, specification, engineering standards, construction standards, financial standards. And we require that each contractor and partner we do business with, whether it be someone supplying uh, still from a mill or someone supplying equity from, invest, from an institutional investment fund, partake in our Brand Green expectations. And that means... Uh, full due diligence on on sources of uses, where capital comes from, where materials come from, how labor laws are enforced in the countries of origin, how um, uh, how environmentally and social, what the uh, maturity of their own environmental and social governance standards are. We wrap that all into brand green, and that's our way of being less reactive and, and more proactive into the ESG movement. You get a, a second for a couple examples and then a question that uh, I'd like to just know your opinion on because it's been driving me wild, but driving me nuts lately. Let's do it. But I think you got yeah. a lot, a lot of insight into this because I say I, I've been talking to your CEO for five, six years, and and I've I've heard firsthand, like many of our listeners have, what the frustrations have been. And you don't even have to read between the line the last couple of years. <laughs> He's just flat out saying what they are. So. Uh, when I take a look at my experience, six years ago in Colorado, I started talking with people or notice, I'm, excuse me, I started noticing when I was talking with people in the hotel breakfast bars in Fort Collins, Greeley, and Denver, that the people who worked in the oil and gas industry would look over their shoulders before they said they worked in the oil and gas industry. This was six years ago. Okay, so I started talking about this six years ago. Three years ago, I'm in Casper, Wyoming, and it was at the Wildcatters golf event, and they it's where they rent out the entire country club, and it's only oil and gas people there. There's nobody else there. The, the members can't even go there that day, right? So we're, we're in the lounge at lunch, and these four or five millennial aged, and I'm not picking on millennials, this is that they were all under 30, 
they, they were serving, and it was four women and one guy. And there must have been, you know, 75 people in this, in this lounge for lunch. And I bet each server made three to 500 bucks, okay? Because first of all, it's oil and gas, so they tip well. And secondly, it's oil and gas, so they, they, they like to have a couple martinis at lunch because it's a golf <laughs> event. So anyway, not, and I stayed around because I wasn't golfing. I had some other activities uh, with, the, with the Johnny Green and, and the whole uh, environmental uh, speaking that I do. And so I was I, probably 20 minutes I hung out in the lounge afterwards, but it was enough time to listen to the employees talk about uh, the people who just left. And they said, who was that? And the other one said, oh, some oil and gas people. And for the next 10 minutes, I heard them bash the oil and gas industry. And not because they didn't like the oil and gas industry, but because it was the thing to do. It was, the, it was what you do. And so to be cool, that's what they did. Not even registering, they just made several hundred bucks each in an hour, okay? So then, flash forward to today, when I, when I go to like down into the, the Fort Collins area and go down into Austin, Texas and Fargo, North Dakota, there's people that flat out say on the dating apps, swipe left if you work in oil and gas. So, I mean, that, that's where we're at. So what I'm trying to say is that I truly believe we've entered into a place where there is some social regulations happening, not governmental regulations. And I believe the oil and gas industry still believes they're fighting uh, government regulations when they're not. It's a social regulation that is happening, and it's a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different, I mean, it is like PR beyond PR. And I think you might know what I'm talking about a little bit, but maybe not. Maybe I'm just a crazy guy still talking. I don't know. What do you think? No, no I, I think you're right. Um, so I, I guess, you know, a couple of things. On millennials, I, I would state reluctantly probably that some of the brightest people I've ever worked with, uh, especially in recent years, have been from this millennial generation, handicapped only by their lack of experience. Bright, bright, bright young men and women who are going to make a, uh, a big difference in our future, you know, only lacking the experience to, uh, to run the business. So, you know, I, I'm, we're fortunate that we keep ingesting into our companies, these, these younger, brighter minds, but, um, it, it is a, it is a schooling event that you have to watch though. So, you know, I also don't get too, I don't get too worked up over virtue signaling. It, it's easy to sit, uh, in a room and, and kind of virtue signal about what's wrong with the world. But in the reality, you have to, you have to come up with real solutions. It's easy to sit by and say, okay, well, we're going to power our cars with wind energy and we're going to uh, only use renewable uh, energy sources. And that's fine. Um, and hopefully one day, uh, you know, I don't think we know how to yet, but hopefully one day we can do things like this, but it's a long transition period. We don't go from, the uh, vehicles that we use to transport ourselves with today to uh, completely renewable uh, fuel source vehicles uh, tomorrow. So there's a long transition period, and even uh, even EVs, electrical vehicles, use they they have a significant carbon footprint. Um, so it's we haven't found the solution yet. I'm glad that we want to as a as a, a human race. Um, but there has to be a transition put in place, and some of the transition is what you're seeing now. Also, I think, the, and that's the ESG, the, the, uh, the, the idea that we can do what we're doing better. Um, the roadmap to do this, funny enough, uh, 
we we saw it come into light when we started putting together our ESG programs and say, okay, well, how can we document some of the work that we've done? How can we explain to others what we've done? And I saw a pattern start to emerge, and it reminded me of the health and safety uh, movements of, I'd say, predominantly about 20 years ago, uh, probably starting, you know, much before that. But it really kicked off around, I'd say, in the mid-90s to early 2000s. So you saw, you know, HSE or HSSE or, you know, every company has a little bit of a different initialism for it. You saw HSE start to take a real front seat, you know, a real driver's seat in the industry. And a lot of people had the same reaction then to HSE as they do to ESG now. They would say, okay, well, why do we have to have all of these safety measures in place? You know, we've been doing it this way for for 30 years or 100 years or 50 years. Why do we have to have all these job safety analyses? Why do we have to have uh, extra permitting for critical lifts? Why do we have to have all these things, hot work permits, cold work permits? And now, um, with the industry significantly safer, physically safer, than it was 20 years ago. We just take it for granted. It's just the way it is. Everyone coming in uh, to the industry knows that, okay, if you're going to do something, you have to do it safely. I see the same pattern. I see the same roadmap that we took HSC. I see that now for ESG as well. Okay, initially it seems like an, an unfair burden placed upon operating companies to, to justify their environmental and social footprints. And you say, well, why do we have to do that? We've been doing it this way for, you know, decades or, or longer. Uh, but you'll see that transition. You'll see people coming comfortable with the fact and as they educate themselves and in their industry to say, okay, well, actually we can do things a bit better and it's not that taxing. We can have a, uh, a more productive impact on our, on our society, the social side and the environmental side. Uh, it's not overnight in the same way that we don't transition to completely renewable fuels overnight. We shouldn't expect uh, we shouldn't expect that we're going to transition to a mature ESG industry overnight as well. But I do think that we are starting to make the right steps, even if it hasn't been completely receptive. We are starting to make the right steps, and I, I feel that Meridian has had some play in leading leading by example there. Well, I think you guys have adopted a philosophy and stuck with it, and had some pretty good evidence to show, including court cases to show that you've not only adopted it, but you've actually put it out into, you know, practice type of a thing. So talk to me about the sustainability side. How are you guys going beyond the planet of platitudes and into actual reality with this type of, you know, philosophy of ESG, sustainability, et cetera? Well, part of it is brand green. So it's, it's um, if you read the equator principles by the equator, you know, adopted by the equator principle of financial industries, the EPFIs, um, it's a set of principles, set expectations for new capital being deployed into into the energy market. So that is, that's a grouping of words on paper. Uh, for Meridian, we took that and we adopted it into our environmental and social management plan, but through our brand green uh, ESG portfolio, we set those expectations into the real world by by imposing them upon our contractors. And imposing them is a pretty hard word, a harsh word. It sounds more like a sentence than a uh, than a gift. Uh, but brand green is our is our transformation from the expectation to the reality. 
If you want to do business with Meridian, you must meet these environmental and social expectations. It's an, it's an auditing. It's a due diligence process. We want to make sure that the partners that we have are doing the right thing as well and that they're maturing their ESG portfolio. And a lot of this, uh, you know, when we first announced this, um, we had it, we had a mixture of feedback. Uh, some, some of our more mature contractors had already developed their own ESG programs. Uh, take McDermott, for example. They've got a mature ESG program. Uh, some, of the, some of our other contractors and partners hadn't matured to that point yet. And the initial thought was that they would be somewhat, uh, somewhat opposed to that transformation, but we have not dealt with a single contractor or partner yet who has not met it with positive, uh, a positive reception and that either they are looking forward to developing that program uh, on their own or they've asked us for help. Uh, and they've asked us to help them develop that program. But that's taking it from, from conception into actual reality where you meet with the contractors and say, if you are going to supply a product component of service for these refineries, these are the expectations that we want you to meet. And that's taking it into the real world. Not only do I believe there's a, um, a different kind of regulation uh, that needs to be tackled, I, I believe that there's a long-term play and a, sh- and a short-term play to this whole ESG ref- uh, movement, especially when you're talking about refineries. I mean, that's more, you guys are early adapter and, you know, taking on the, the, the big, the, the big kahuna, so to speak, in the oil and gas world. Um, have you guys looked at this from a long-term and, and a short-term play at all? Well, I, I think I think the long-term and the short-term, uh, I don't see a massive amount of, I don't see a big gap between the two. Um, in the downstream refining, specifically refining, uh, the refining industry, I think it's fair to say that the end is near uh, or that the end is here for a lot of the operating standards and the operating conditions that we currently have, it's not sustainable. Um, and it's not sustainable because change has been shown uh, to exist. It's only sustainable when there's no other options, uh, but there are other options. Now you can refine crude oil with a massively reduced environmental footprint, a massively reduced carbon footprint. So we've shown that you can do this. Once that's out there and once it's shown uh, once it's fully permitted and, and passed through a multiple Supreme Court um, Supreme Court rulings, as we've done, you can say, okay, well, the change is here, which means why isn't the rest, why haven't the rest of the industry changed? So it's a matter of time, um, and I think that's the short term and the long term. The long term reality is both played up in one. Yeah, I, for me, I look at the short term as the education period. As, as there needs to be a little bit more of an education period because I've, I still see a little bit of a disconnect out there. And when you mentioned earlier about the, the public health uh, uh, comparison, and I wrote that down because I've been saying for a number of years, probably three, four years at least, that to me it had that kind of that uh, uh, public health smoking ban template to it. And that was a very difficult thing to bring up because – there's a lot of trigger words in there, and I'm just trying to say no template. Just keep keep an eye on the template and how they're using public health and a number of different things to kind of create a social um, control over it, so to speak. And so when you brought up the public health analogy 
Um, can I ask you a little bit more, just to elaborate on that a little bit now that, you know, you've kind of heard my framed question, if you will. <laughs> I didn't mean to frame it, but I wanted to give you kind of my overview of that, of, of what, how I interpreted when you brought up the public health thing. Yeah, no, I, it's, a, it's a fair thing to, it, it's a fair topic to indulge in. So for, for my comparison, it was more of uh, private sector health and the, the health and safety industry. So um, if you look at where we are now, companies like IS Network. Um, are a known metric provider. So you can, you can, if you want to do business, let's say you're going to let a billion dollars worth of contracts and you want to know, okay, well, which one of these con, which one of these contractors that provide a similar service has the best safety record? These are all metrics that are, are submitted to ISNet World. And there's, there's a, you know, ISNet World is not a standalone provider of this information, but it's a very common one. Um, it has a significant amount of the market share. So, a lot of owner-operators use IS Network. Um, we would look at that and we would say, okay, well, I've got two providers that provide the same service. One has a uh, one has an undesirable safety record on site. One has a more desirable safety record on site. So this is something that has taken around 20 plus years to evolve to where it's it's the status quo now. If you want to be if you want to participate in the oil and gas industry. You probably have to have a membership to that metric provider. You probably have to have a very good safety record, and you probably have to um, have a mature health and safety environmental program. So that's taken you know 20 plus years to to enact. Now, what was just released? Um, I think it was in the New York Times about a week ago. Is that IS Net World, the provider of health and safety metrics, is now and now uh, positioning themselves to be a provider of ESG metrics as well. So what you'll see over the next few years, and, and hopefully not too much longer than that, is you'll see companies start to submit their ESG ratings. There's a number of companies that will come in and provide either solicited or unsolicited ESG ratings. And you'll see these compiled into metrics provided by SNet World, so where companies like Meridian or Exxon or Marathon or Shell if you want to do business with these companies, you have to have this rating, which means you are forced to then take this seriously and, and, and take your environmental and social governance program seriously. So we, we feel like we're quite a bit ahead of the curve, but the curve is, it, it, the industry is catching up. It's been reactive, but it is catching up, especially when you have, when you have large information providers like ISNet World providing rating systems for companies in the ESG programs. Uh, that's going to catch on um, very, very quickly. That's amazing. I pontificated two years ago when I started understanding the severity of the ESG movement. And uh, I said, boy, I wouldn't be surprised if there's an ESG score attached at the end of the day. And that's what you're talking about, that there's, there's, there's more reality behind that than not, than fiction at this point. So um, you well, mentioned yeah, – oh, go ahead. Uh, it, it, it's a it's an active thing. Um, the difference between solicited and unsolicited is if you are, let's say, you're a private company pre-IPO, um, you would request an ESG rating. So it's a solicited request. Um, you know, there's a few companies that do this, a few leading companies that do it, and you can request them to come in, do a do an audit, do some due diligence on your how you're operating your your firm. And they'll provide you with a solicited rating. If um, you are a public company, it's an unsolicited. It's it's not something you have to ask for. 
it's something they're going to do whether you want them to or not. That's the right approach. Um, so this is reality. These things exist now. Um, so it's definitely maturing at a, at a quick pace. And, and I think one of the things that's going to help the industry, you know, kind of develop this roadmap is that we have done it before in very similar, uh, very similar causes, specifically health and safety. You mentioned earlier that you've got the kind of your version of it, uh, this, uh, of the ESG, the Go Green at your website available to the public. Is that, talk to me a little bit more about that. I just wrote it down quick in the notes, but I, I, are you guys, is this a consulting business? Is this something people can download and look at for free? Talk to me about what, what, what this is. Oh, it's, it's not a consulting business. Um, it's, uh, and you can download it and look at it for free. Um, so when we, when we sat down to draft out the principles by which we had already been operating, um, we drafted that into our environmental and social management plan. Um, and it's, it's not a, it's not a 100 page document. Um, and it's not proprietary. It's a, a document that we wrote and we, and we then made it public, um, for, for the benefit of others. So if you don't have an environmental and social management plan, uh, you're welcome to use ours. Uh, we think it benefits everybody. Now, that is step one. The environmental and social management plan is a governing document over, as, you know, sort of at a GP level, at a parent level. We also have what we call the PESMAP, uh, Project Development and Project Specific Environmental and Social Management Plan. This is a, now this is a big document. It is proprietary. Um, it has confidential information in it. And it's, uh, I think the last one I looked at was around 180 pages. So at a project-specific level, we have our projects, project development, uh, environmental and social management plan, and this is a, a very large document that talks very specifically um, about the actual, the actual size, water tables, uh, social conditions, et cetera. Um, that one is not public because it has proprietary information and confidential information in it about how refined products are transported, the carbon footprint of transportation, uh, how we manage that, how we lessen the impact of such things. Um, but the environmental and social management plan, along with the meeting of our minutes, we have ESG committee meetings every quarter. Uh, we make all of that public because we think, number one, uh, it helps others. Uh, and also, we're, we're okay with people looking at this and saying, okay, well, Meridian, you should consider uh, going further in, in this topic. Uh, we, we'll take that feedback, and if it's appropriate, we'll do it. Kind of wrapping up here, a little bit of a conclusion. Um, just kind of what you guys have, you know, on your on your short term hopper. What you guys are looking for out of uh, anybody listening? If you're looking for uh, customers for that new refinery or investors at, at the Walton Refinery, would just take an opportunity to give yourself a plug. I appreciate you guys coming on and sharing the ESG knowledge and everything. So, well, no, I appreciate that, and I always I always appreciate appreciate speaking with you, Jason, and your audience. Um, you know, Meridian is a development stage firm, so uh, we are a private company and always looking for new partnerships, whether it be equity or or uh, or, or another another matters. For for the Davis Refinery, we are a 100% subscribed refinery, meaning the refined product is 100% um, uh, under term sheet. The uh, Walton Station Refinery and Oklahoma Refinery are still in development stage, so. Uh, we, you know, we're still putting that together. 
Um, but I, I think everything that's going our way in 2021 is going to be, uh, despite all political aspects, going to be a, a very bright year for the industry. Well, you build a bridge and I'll have a on the harmony. After a hard week's work, we'll end it a mighty fine melody. Jason Spies. Thank you for joining the program today. You know, I, I come from an oil background. My family's been in the oil and gas industry for 60 years. I, I think the thing with the younger generation is the younger generation has pretty much bought into the climate change phenomenon. They really believe everything that people tell them. We just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us, and especially you, Jason. Without, without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. So I, I don't want to be real critical of them because being a guy who's, you know, dad has several small businesses and, and coming from that sort of small business background, I get it. I mean, the, the, the operators here were put in a real bad position by the state of North Dakota. I'm glad that we've got people like you to pay attention and bring us information on stuff like this. Prices can't go any lower for services. I, I, they're, they're too low right now. I, our margins are in the single percentage point if we're lucky, and we're not lucky that often. You're exactly right. ESG is becoming more and more important to shareholders. I can speak for my 20 companies. They take it very serious. It makes perfect sense, and I thought you had a really good show last week. Jason, I love your inquisitive questions because you you ask important questions that that lead to the most important truths. Hey, this is Kevin Kramer representing proudly the state of North Dakota in the United States Senate. Talking to Jason Spies, who's like the best energy interviewer in the world. No one does an interview like Jason Spies. We all like living the crude life, so. <laughs> the Crude Life with host Jason Spies. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with Kate Hornbrook with Ace Completions and the new president of Oilfield Connections International, the Midland chapter down in the Permian Basin. In just a moment, part of our exclusive interview with Kate Hornbrook right here on the Crude Life Daily Update. It was in a bad situation in which I have now stepped up to president. Um, unfortunately, Greg Mays, who was the chapter president of the Permian, actually passed away due to COVID. So, you know, prayers for his family, prayers for his friends. Um, but, you know, think things have to keep moving. And, you know, the, the board members of OCI chose me to, you know, go from VP into the president spot. And uh, I have actually chosen Tiffany Wilson from Aries to be my VP. Um, I think she brings a lot to the table and, and uh, you know, an all-female power team. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but, yeah, we, we are actually planning to have our first event um, for after the holidays now on the 4th of February, our regular luncheon. I believe that we're going to have to switch venues from the Rolling Sevens over to a different venue just while the weather isn't cooperative and it's a bit colder here. But we're looking at new venues and hoping to have a a great kickoff uh, in February 
now that we are past the holidays. Our, our next luncheon will be the 4th of February. That'll just be our, our regular uh, monthly luncheon. Um, I don't believe that we're going to have a speaker. I think we're just going to leave it at open networking for that event. Um, and I think we'll have to cap it due to um, restrictions for coronavirus and pending what venue we choose. Um, but I think we're also hoping to do a happy hour once we get into the warmer months. To listen to the full-length interview with Kate Hornbrook with the Oilfield Connections International Midland Chapter and Ace Completions, check out thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. While you're there, be sure to check out our ever-growing army of energy enthusiasts through our social media channels. From Facebook to YouTube to Twitter to LinkedIn, we have all kinds of social media channels for you to follow right here at The Crude Life and thecrudelife.com. From the staff here at The Crude Life Daily Update, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard.